Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. That last episode was pretty strange, so I decided to get back to some more nuts and bolts practice ideas in this particular episode. So let me begin it by saying... To get better as a musician, it really, really helps to play with better musicians. And, you know, that is a problem for a lot of beginners and intermediate players and sometimes advanced players. There's that little problem of you want to surround yourself by people that are better than you, but they may not want to surround themselves themselves by with you, if that makes sense. I, I talked about this some in some previous episodes, but that's a problem. There's no doubt if you're surrounded by people that know how to do things and are really good at it, then you're going to pick up that. You're going to become better just by absorption. But a lot of beginners just don't have that available to them. And it, when it does come, it's in fleeting instances. So let's just, for the purposes of this podcast, imagine that you are a beginner or an intermediate-level bluegrass player, student. Or possibly you're a better player than that, or, you know, even a very good player who is wanting to improve on some particular songs or techniques, or maybe you could be a really good musician who's trying to learn to play a new instrument. But more or less, just picture that you're a beginner or an intermediate player with, you know, a, a few months or a few years experience, or you just started and, and you want to make progress and become a better player. I mean, that's kind of the concept of this entire podcast the whole series. So here are your options. The first option you have for practicing is to practice alone in isolation. And without a doubt, this is what most people do most of the time. And, and it is valuable in certain ways. But you get your book out or whatever, and you get your instrument out, and you sit and practice. So that's, that's the first way. And what's missing there is the only musician in the vicinity is you. So there is not that added benefit of absorbing and learning from other better musicians. You're all alone, you know. There are times for, for that, don't get me wrong, but that's the most common style of practice. You get your instrument out and you practice alone. The second way, and it's a, it's somewhat of an improvement is to play with a metronome. And I'm not going to get deep into the metronome for this episode. I may in a future one, I've talked about it at length 
in my book, Mandolin Masterclass and Mandolin Training Camp, I've written things about the metronome. And I've got metronome tracks, uh, uh, things like that on my website. I just don't want to get too deep into just focusing on the metronome. Let me just mention some of the pros and cons. The pros is it sort of imposes accuracy on your practice. And it also allows you to measure in very specific numerical terms certain aspects of your progress, like at what tempo can you play Salt Creek? I can do it at 82 beats per minute, that, that sort of thing. The metronome also um, imposes, it forces the intense listening that is required for playing good music. Because that little click or tick-tock sound or woodblock sound or whatever kind of metronome you use oftentimes is not very prominent over your instrument, especially if you're banging away on a banjo or something. It's real easy when you're playing along with a metronome to lose track of that click. And so it requires focus on that. And while you're focusing on that, you're not focusing on what you're doing. So, so that's a, I consider that a pro it, it gets you outside of just focusing on just you. And it makes you listen outside yourself to this sort of arbitrary mechanical click. It's a good thing. It's difficult and it's frustrating in terms of the, the cons to playing with a metronome. It's very uninspiring. You know, you're not going to get jazzed hearing click, click, click. You know, it just doesn't inspire you to musical greatness. Uh, sometimes, as I said, it's difficult to hear. And probably the number one downside to a metronome is that there is no pitch or, or tonal context to compare what you're doing with. So let's say you're playing a little tune in the key of A and your only reference is a tick, 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 and you hit a wrong note. There's no signal. There's no dissonance with that click. So you may happily just merrily play along playing wrong notes. You, you don't have anything to compare it to. You don't have any chords behind you or any tonal context. So that's, that's a downside with the metronome, but it has its, its upside. Don't get me wrong, but that's, that's number two. Number one, you can practice in total isolation alone, you and your instrument. Number two, you can play with a metronome. I've talked about that. Number three, this is something a lot of people do, and I've done it a lot, is to play along with records. It was certainly done a lot more. Um, back in the day, as they say, because that was all you had. You couldn't flip on the TV and find anything with bluegrass on it, or rarely, and you had no way to record it. So what you had were record albums. And, you know, a lot of time would be spent, I'm talking about back in the 70s, you know, slowing down the record, playing it 1,500 times, trying to figure out what those notes were that Sam Bush is playing. And then sometimes just playing along with it. So playing along with records of good bands, and generally speaking, if they're on record, they're probably good. 
And these days I'm going to lump in also possibly videos because there's a lot of high quality performance videos too. So playing along with records, the, the pro side of that is you are playing with good musicians. So you do absorb that or you potentially could. They're more than likely going to have good timing and, you know, that sort of thing. And it can be really fun and inspiring to feel like you're playing along with so-and-so. I, I still do that sometimes. I, I put on albums and, and just, just play along with them. But the, the downside to playing with records is that the song is always played at one speed. And it may be too fast for you. might be too too fast for me. They don't allow any space for you. In fact, they don't even know you exist. So, you know, there's no blank spaces for you to take your banjo break, you know. And this, depending upon your personality, playing along with those, you know, great records uh, too much, for certain personality types at certain times, can be kind of humiliating. Like... The last thing I want to do, I, a couple of years ago, I took up the dobro and I decided I'm going to learn a new instrument. I get my dobro out and I, I start working. And I, I, a few times I put on some records and, and playing along, just playing along, playing color licks and just fooling around, trying to familiarize myself with the instrument. And I want to hear some good tunes at the same time. Like, hmm, let me try this thing here in B you know, some third time out record or something like that. But inevitably the moment comes where, you know, whatever you're listening to, here comes Jerry Douglas playing his solo. And it, it can knock the wind out of your sails a little bit because you just heard all the garbage you were playing. And now you're hearing, you know, arguably the greatest dobro player that ever walked the earth. And you, it could kill your belief that, Hey, I could do that one day. So that's one of the downsides. So, you know, I tend to choose an album that doesn't have much going on in the way of the instrument that I'm currently working on. Now, you know, bluegrass with the banjo, mandolin, guitar, bass, fiddle, setup, dobro, I can, you know, jam with, you know, these world famous hot bands on the dobro. I, didn't, I never get to take a break, but I got to play some fill and some color and stuff. And it's been very useful. So, Playing with records has its pros and cons. Uh, there are some records that do have space for you. And one, one good example of that, and you kind of have to go out and find these things. Uh, one record that I have used a lot is the Skaggs and Rice album. I have spent many, many hours playing bass to the Skaggs and Rice album. There's also, I've got a, I think it's a, might be a Grisman and Garcia thing. It's just guitar and mandolin. You know, those sort of things might be, might be tone poems. I can't remember, but I have a few albums that have no bass and I practice playing the bass with them. Now there are other records that I've used. I have a few times, a couple of years ago, I took our own band's album that I played mandolin on in the Pony Express. It was an album called Messenger. And I just decided I want to get my bass chops really in shape. 
I'm just going to play bass with that album and see if I can make it through all the tracks start to finish. And my goal was to not play a wrong note. Now, of course, our regular bass player was on there playing and he didn't play any wrong notes on the album. So my goal was just to more or less do the same thing. So sometimes you can play with an instrument like that. And sometimes it's better to have a little space, but anyway, playing with records, that's certainly a valid practice method. But again, it's always at one speed may not be the speed you need and there's no real space for you. So number four, you're trying to get better as a musician. You can go to jam sessions, organize jam sessions, weekly jam sessions, monthly jam sessions, you know, bluegrass organizations, going to festivals, you know, where they, where the jams are. So the pros of that, you've got to get out there and, play with other people that so you're doing that if you go to a jam you're playing with other people and there are some things that you can only learn in real life not not simulated not virtual reality but real life things like dealing with pressure and nerves nervousness you know stage fright you know when they look at you to take a break it's hard to simulate that sort of fear at home when you're playing along with a record. And if you don't do so well, you know, nothing really happens. You, your face doesn't turn red and you don't shrink off into the corner. Another thing um, that you learn to deal with at jam sessions are variable tempos. You know, if you're playing along with a good quality record, the tempos aren't going to vary not too much you know, in terms of rushing or dragging, but in jam sessions, it happens all the time. And, and so you learn kind of how to deal with that and maybe how to not contribute to that because maybe you're the one rushing, maybe you're the one dragging and you're only going to learn that, you know, what that feels like to get out there in that real world jam session. And I have in many episodes tried to convince you to go do that. Uh, so, not going to say much more about that. You also learn something about communication skills, the nonverbal communicating that goes on among the players. And that's all good about jams. But in terms of becoming technically more proficient on your instrument, the downside of jam sessions are that it's, it's, it's questionable and certainly unpredictable you know, exactly what kind of quality music is going to be played because you're not in control and jam sessions tend to be populated by lesser quality players. I mean, that's just a fact. I'm going to, I'm not saying that really, really super musicians don't jam, but most jams are formed because people are not in bands. And so this is their outlet to play. So you're going to find lots of beginners, lots of intermediates, and the occasional old timers and, and, you know, old pros that used to play or play some. I'm not saying, you know, don't get me wrong. If you love your current jam session, I'm not knocking your jam session. I've never been to it. I can't really comment on it. I'm just saying that let's say you're at a bluegrass festival and you're wandering around the festival Probably you're going to hear some jams that are pretty low 
quality. And then you're going to hear some other jams that are a little better. And then you're going to hear some real hot jams. And then you can go down to the stage and hear the true first quality stuff. So it's a scale. And that quality level depends upon, you know, how many really good musicians are there in that jam. If you got 10 people sitting in a circle and eight of them are like super good and two of them are, you know, could barely play, that's still going to be a pretty good jam session. You can get a lot out of that. But if it's the opposite, if eight of them, you know, just graduated from the six week banjo course or something and the bass player, you know, it's their first day ever attempting to play the bass. And there's one guy with a guitar who's mostly knows some rock tunes and he's reading bluegrass tunes out of a book and doesn't even know the melodies to what I'm saying is those sort of jam sessions, not going to do a lot to improve your play. So that's just the truth about jam sessions. Another downside to jams is that the songs only get played once and a lot of people go to jams and I encourage my students to go to jams to like, Hey, you know, you're getting pretty good at that cripple Creek and boil them cabbage. Down. You need to go to the jam. You know, we're having a jam. Why don't you come to the jam, come to the jam. And if they do, they're coming because they want to play cripple Creek and they want to play boil them cabbage down. Cause that's all they know how to do. So a lot of people show up at a jam to do the things that they're working on. You want to test drive them, you know, see how they sound with some other pickers and things like that. But the problem is at the jam session, if that song gets played at all, it's only getting played one time and you may only get one break on it. And it may not be kicked off at the tempo that you need in order to successfully play it. Or it might not be in the key that you hoped it was in. You might have learned old Joe Clark in A and here they are playing it in G. So it's a great experience and it's one you need to do. But that experience alone is not going to improve your technical ability, your skill with your instrument. Another downside to jam sessions is the sound the the balance the mix it's almost always subpar if i stuck a recorder in the middle of a typical jam session turned it on and recorded the thing with all the talking and extraneous noise and the six guitars and the you know you know what i mean and then i compared that to grab your favorite bluegrass album play that and play them back to back you have to agree that the sound quality at a jam session is not nearly as good. And you can, you can develop better as a musician. If you're practicing in a kind of sound space that, that promotes technical improvement. Okay. Enough about that. So here's a, another possibility. And that is number five, get into a professional level band. And if you can't get into one, well, then you could just hire one and, and hire some pros, you know, maybe you, you could call up Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver and pay them enough money to move in with you. And they'll play with you every day and they'll play your songs in your favorite key 
at your tempos over and over and over and over. Of course, that would cost you a small fortune. And uh, even, I don't know if a million dollars would, would cause Doyle Lawson to move in, you know, with certain players and stay there, let's say a year, you know, <laughs> it might drive them to suicide or something. You know, there is that thing about, you know, you want to play with people that are on your level, but you always want to be in over your head. Anyway, that would cost you a fortune. And so I don't think that's a very practical um, solution to this, but you want good quality. You want to be practicing along. If you're using music, you want to practice along with good quality sounds, rhythms, tone. Besides, if you, if you had that band move in your house up, well, in my case, I'm sure my wife would kick me out and them kick them out and they'd eat up all the food in the house and they'd certainly drink up all the beer. So I don't think that's a great idea. I, I do think, as I recall, I think maybe David Grisman actually did this in a sort of kind of way when he was out in California and he was assembling the David Grisman, the first David Grisman quintet, quartet. And uh, some of these guys just moved in with him. I remember Mike Marshall talking about that scene out there. And they just moved in and like, hey, are we ever going to have a gig? And they're just living in the basement or something. So I suppose it is possible if you're young and unattached. Maybe maybe you could go out and find a bunch of um, 18, 19, 20-year-old flannel shirt-wearing guys with beards who are just really hot on playing bluegrass, and you can just have them come over and live in your basement with you and just keep promising them a gig out in the future. And, you know, then you'd have somebody to jam with. But anyway, that idea number five is probably not very practical. So I'm going to give you a better idea, and that that is the idea of using jam tracks, also known as practice tracks. And, you know, when I got started playing back in the 70s, I'm, you know, working on banjo tunes out of the books, and I'm trying to play the mandolin and trying to play the fiddle. And I started making homemade tracks on a little cassette recorder. And I had a guitar, and I learned how to play guitar, or tried to learn how to play bluegrass guitar, for the sole purpose of recording some rhythm tracks. And I can remember having that cassette recorder out, just sitting on the floor, hitting record and playing the chords to dear old Dixie on the guitar and maybe going through it twice and then stopping and then play the tape back and try to play my banjo along with it. Homemade tracks, you know, they are a possibility, but then again, I was worse as a guitar player at that time than I was as a banjo player. So I'm not sure it really helped me. It certainly didn't guarantee that I had good impeccable rhythm and that sort of thing. It did provide that tonal context though, that hearing the chords behind you, that's better than not having it because if you hit a, a, a clam, it sticks out more. You know, if he's hitting a C chord and you hit a C-sharp note at the wrong time, you notice it. Or you, you might not notice it alone, or you might not notice it with a metronome. But homemade tracks, things have gotten a lot better today. There are a lot of possibilities for tracks. You know, I've fiddled around with, a, I've tried and a lot of different 
solutions for this. There was, you know, some software band in the box type things and garage band and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, I was always looking for tracks like this that, you know, would save me the trouble of having to create them myself. Um, and they exist now. So, you know, there's really no excuse. There are numerous sources for this type of thing. In fact, when I was, um, when I took up the Dobro, I was working on, I'm trying to remember what song it was. Oh, I saw a Greg Booth, Greg Booth was a great Dobro player up in Alaska. And he had some YouTube videos and he had done this amazing version of uh, Wichita Lineman. And I thought that is the prettiest and seemingly most difficult thing I can imagine because he played it so well. And I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to try to figure out what he's doing and, and try to learn to play it. And if I get 10%, 20% of what he's doing incorporated into my playing, I will have made some progress. So, I tried to find the chord progression online to that song and that it, it's, it's a, it's not your bluegrass one, four, five progression, you know, it's pretty, pretty out there. So I kept finding conflicting versions of the chords and I wasn't sure what the chords to the song were. Well, I finally found a karaoke site, a, a website that sold karaoke tracks and they happened to have that song, and it happened to be in the exact key that he was playing it in and that I was attempting to learn it in. So I paid $1.99 for this track or something, $1.99, $2.99, something like that, and downloaded it. And that's what I started practicing with. I put it on my iPod, and I started playing along with that thing. And it was just a rhythm backing track, you know, guitar, bass, drums. Maybe there was some keyboard or something in there. Not exactly bluegrass, but you get the principle. I cannot tell you how many times I could probably look it up on my iPod. I think it records, you know, how many times you've played it. I played that track a lot and I, I still am working on it anyway. These tracks are out there uh, for bluegrass. It's, it's, you know, there's some stuff out there. You, you've probably found some of them. Anyway, what, what do I personally want in a practice track for bluegrass? I want a good solid bed of bluegrass rhythm with guitar, bass, and mandolin. That's what I want. That's, that's laying down that machine that you can play over and you can play any bluegrass instrument over the top of that. You can lay down banjo on that. Mandolin, fiddle, dobro, guitar, flat picking, whatever you're playing, you can lay over that as the core of a bluegrass sound. You got the low of the bass and you got the high of the mandolin and you got the guitar in the middle with all that rich tonal characteristic. That's what I want in a track. I also want tracks to be in, in a, in the, in the most common real world key, you know, I don't want to practice, uh, let's say, old Joe Clark in B-flat, you know? I mean, it would be useful <laughs> to do that, but you're never going to find anybody on the planet playing it in B-flat. They're all going to play in A, so 
I want my track to be in the most common real world key. Uh, the next thing, I want the tracks to repeat the entire song at least a few times. I don't just want one trip through it, so I don't have to keep hitting play and start over. And, you know, I want to count off, too. I don't want just to start. I want to count off so I can come in right with it. But be, I want that track to go a few times so that, you know, maybe I'll start with just rhythm. And then on the second pass, I'm taking my break. And then I'm going back to rhythm, that sort of thing. Another thing that I want, and some people may not want this, but I see the value in it. I want some really slow tracks. I want some tracks that I can easily hit everything I'm trying to hit. May not have the kind of feel that I'm, you know, aiming for later, but the first order of business is play all those notes. And I want something that's going at a speed where I can successfully do that. I want to easily practice all those new things I'm working on. And, you know, practice only works. It's only effective in improving you if you make lots of repetitions doing it the right way. I talked about that in Madeline Training Camp. Did a little analysis, my thoughts on that. Playing a lot of repetitions at speeds which allow you to play sloppy or with errors, you know, letting junk sneak in just makes you better at being lousy. There are times when you need to push and, and see what your limits are. And you can only learn to play fast by playing fast, but you are not going to play fast accurately if you cannot play slow accurately. And it's frustrating sometimes at, at jam sessions that there's like a lot of jam sessions sort of have one speed. It's like everything just falls into that one speed. And if you hit something, you start something off, kick it off a little slower, just let's just put a different feel on it. And within about 10 beats, boom, it's right back up to the speed. Same with higher speeds. They drag them back. Anyway, so I want some really not, not like insanely slow tracks, but I still want them to sound good and they're fun to play with, but I want them to be slow enough that I can nail every single note in that crazy complicated thing I'm attempting to learn. Even if crazy complicated means crazy complicated for you on that particular day. Also, I want more tracks of that same song. I don't just want one track. I want several tracks at incrementally quicker tempos. But one thing I don't want is huge tempo jumps. I, I don't want track one at 60 and track two at a hundred because that's just too big a jump. If you're playing 60 beats a minute beautifully and you cannot do a hundred, how are you going to get from 60 to a hundred? Well, you get the metronome out, but then you don't have all those advantages of playing along with a track. But, you know, if you're at 60, maybe what you need is 70 or 75. And from there, do you need to jump to 100? No, maybe you need 85, you know. Want them a little closer together. And I'd rather have them on the slow side because that's where the problems come in. Your problems manifest themselves at the higher tempos, but they're caused by things that you did at a slower speed.
It just all falls apart when you go faster. Anyway, I basically, I want a group of tracks that are, have a nice, gentle, upward slope in terms of tempo. That's my preference. And of course, a metronome will always do that, but you got the downsides of the metronome. Okay. I also want a variety of songs, bluegrass tunes in a variety, not just one common key. I, I want a couple of keys. You know, I want some in C and D and G and A. You know, a lot of people, a lot of banjo players, they only learn G to start with and then they struggle when they put their capo on or they don't know what to do in the key of D. I want a little bit of variety in there. And I want to, I want to work on those must know tunes. You know, I, I may love some off the wall, bizarro tune by the fleck tones. And I may really, really want to learn to play that. But depending upon where you are in your life as a bluegrass musician, your first order of business, go back and listen to the episode called Dear John. Your first order of business is to become a competent bluegrass picker. And that means knowing the standards, being familiar with them. You know, you have to take a little pride in the history of the music that you're playing. If you're a banjo player who cannot play Foggy Mountain Breakdown, and you claim to be a bluegrass banjo player, I mean, you could be a banjo player and never play that song. But you cannot claim to be a bluegrass banjo player and not be able to play those tunes. You know what I'm saying? And when you learn those tunes, ask Bela Fleck. When you learn Earl's stuff, that helps you play other things. So there's no shame in learning all that, but that's what I want. You know... I want to work on tunes. And I, again, we're imagining that you're a beginner or an intermediate or, a, you know, a person, all those people I talked about earlier. I want to work on tunes as that person that every competent and experienced bluegrass picker knows how to play. Let's, let's imagine you're that beginner, you're that intermediate. And write down a list of all the stuff you know. What key they're in. What, what can you do? Write down a list of what you can do. You want to improve that list. And then picture in your mind, you know this guy. He's great. He just seems to know all the tunes. He, he throw any song at him. He can do it. In the bluegrass context, he's great. You, you just think he's great. Well, what does he know? That's what you should try to know. At least as a base. You know, a base to build upon. It's, it's sometimes very frustrating to run into people that just refuse to do that. They just want to jump over that and go straight to the whatever. And that's fine, except that it would be inaccurate to say that they're a bluegrass musician. If you're going to be a bluegrass musician, hey, try to learn a little bluegrass and then go do whatever you want to do. You know, carry a little bit of that knowledge with you. Don't be that guy at the jam session when they say, hey, uh, can you play red-haired boy? And you go, eh. Nah, I don't know that one. How about uh, Blue Ridge Cabin Home? Mm, nah, but if you play it, I'd probably play along. You, you get my point. Okay. So I, I've spent a lot of time here talking about the various options of practicing, and I hope you've gotten something out of that. Now I'm going to switch to a little bit of a sales pitch.
Back when I was creating my mandolin video lessons for Watch and Learn, and they're now available at my own site, bradleylaird.com, sometimes I would make my own tracks for what I was teaching because I felt it was so important for you as the student to, as you're working on these tunes to have something to play it with, even if it was just a guitar. And there are a few videos that I just have, I just recorded, counted it off and played the guitar rhythm with it. If you have some of those videos, you, you've heard them. And sometimes I made them a little more elaborate and played bass and, you know, banjo and some other stuff. But anyway, as these lessons were developing, you know, I'd come in there each week or every other week and do a new lesson. And sometimes I would hear one, like hear somebody else. I was working there as a director too, shooting banjo and guitar and bass and drums videos and all this stuff and doing editing. And some other guys would come in, they'd have these tracks they're playing. I'm like, Hey, could I use that track? You know, that you know, that sitting on top of the world track you got is really good. Could I use it? I'm, I'm going to do a lesson on sitting on top of the world. I'd love to use that rhythm track. So anyway, the company ended up hiring, and they hired one of the best bluegrass guitarists in the world who you've never heard of, or you may have heard of. The guy's name is Curtis Jones. Really good bluegrass guitarist. He can play a lot of other stuff, too. I've mentioned him. I think I mentioned him in the last episode. Anyway, they hired him to lay down a bunch of bluegrass standard backing tracks at multiple speeds. And they started building up this library of them. And I've used some of those tracks with my own videos. And you might, you might have a, a few of them. Anyway, I got to thinking about this topic that I was going to do about the, you know, various things you can do when you're practicing all by yourself and using pr tracks to practice and I decided to call them up. I, I don't work for them anymore. I just, you know, kind of have a little relationship with them in that whenever I sell a video, I have to pay them a royalty for my, my video. But anyway, I called them up. I said, all those tracks, you know, is there any possibility that I could get those, get all those backing tracks and put them on my website? for other people to use. Cause I think they're really great. I use them. I use them now when I'm practicing, particularly Dobro right now, I'm using those tracks, those very tracks a lot. So talk to them a little bit and they said, yeah, that'd be fine. You know, do it. So I did. And I put together this little, this little, um, not little, it's 55 MP3 audio tracks. It's 17 different songs, all of them at multiple speeds. It's 17 of those must-play songs. John, if you're listening, you need to learn all 17 of these. <laughs> I also wrote a 12-page PDF booklet that comes with those 55 tracks with the chord progressions, just so you don't have to sit there and, you know, try to sort all that out. I put the chord progressions in, in a little... PDF booklet form. And I use the exact same format that I used in my jam session survival book, which probably many of you have that, that jam session lifesaver book. I use the exact same format. So you're just reading chord letter names. And for the tunes that are played in more than one key, like if, if, if the track, let's say for Blue Ridge Cabin Home is in the key of A, I wrote out the chords in the key of A for you mandolin players and bass players. And I wrote them out in the 
key of G for you capo two banjo guitar people. Anyway, I put all these 55 tracks together and kind of designed what I thought was my perfect set of, of tracks. And the total playing time of all the tracks is a little over two hours. I think it's two hours and eight minutes of total content. And every song repeats multiple times. They're MP3 tracks. You can, you know, slap them on your device. And I think the average track length is about two and a half minutes. Anyway, back when I took up the Dobro a couple of years ago, you can't imagine how many hours I've spent playing with some of those particular tracks. Anyway, enough about that practice track package. If you want that thing, go to bradleylaird.com slash tracks. If you want to get them, I also um, have some, I put some free samples up there. So go over there and just grab them. Uh, but now let me turn the corner and talk a little bit about how I, how I personally use practice tracks when I'm playing. It wouldn't matter if it was these tracks or somebody else's tracks or whatever. First off, I don't use an iPhone or a little tablet or anything like that to play them back on because the speakers are just way too small and the, the audio fidelity is frankly pathetic. I get disturbed a lot of times, you know, some, somebody will say, have you heard this song by so-and-so? And they got their iPhone and they play it, this YouTube video. And I, you never hear the bass. And as a bass player, that kind of hurts my feelings. You know, <laughs> I want to hear that bass and you should too. If you want to improve as a musician, you know, you need to hear that bass. You need to be tied in with that bass, locked up with that bass. And if you can't hear it, these little mobile devices have crummy little speakers and you're not going to hear any bass just a fact somebody recorded uh, a youtube video of our band the pluck tones playing last weekend posted on facebook i went and listened to it on my little they're a little better speakers on this macbook but i really couldn't hear myself at all plugged a set of headphones in and it was better <laughs> anyway if you happen to be listening to this podcast on some mobile device with a little tiny speaker, just pause, go over to bradleylaird.com slash tracks, download one of those sample tracks and play it over your phone and listen to it. Just see if you can hear the bass. It's there. And then save that file. When you get home, plug that thing into your stereo and listen to the difference. It'll blow your mind because these tracks don't judge them by some little one inch speaker. These, these things were recorded in a studio with good mics and they're full blown stereo, 44.1 kilohertz CD quality, very little compression on that when they were converted to MP3 and they sound really good on a good system. So anyway, here are the ways I have used these tracks. First thing I do is I, I line them all up in a playlist on my iPod. And once you've downloaded them, if you go over there and get them and download them, do that on your laptop or desktop. Don't, don't try to do it directly to your phone. It's a problem because all those files are all combined together in one zip file and you need to unzip it. And that doesn't work very well. Apple is so protective. They want everything to come through the iTunes store. So, you can make the purchase on your phone or tablet, but it's far better to 
when that email comes a few minutes later with your download link, go to your laptop or desktop computer, do the download there, unzip it, put your stuff in iTunes or whatever, and then transfer them over if you want to use them on a tablet. Anyway, enough about that. Anyway, once I've got the tracks on, you know, set up a playlist of the stuff I'm working on, I, I want to practice, I'll run that iPod output into my home stereo system, get me a music stand, maybe a chair, and I start practicing. And there are various loop settings you can do where you can have the whole playlist loop or you can just have one track. As soon as it ends, it starts again. A lot of times I do that if I'm working on one specific thing. Now, sometimes I use a set of headphones instead of the stereo. You know, like maybe Jackson's in there watching My Favorite Martian or something. And so I need to go out on the porch to practice. So I'll use a set of headphones. And I've got several sets, but I like, uh, I've got a little set that has sort of like foam pads that go on your ears. They're not the closed cup isolation type of headphones because I need to hear my own instrument too. You know, you don't want headphones that just block out all sound because all you're going to hear is the track and not enough of yourself. And also sometimes to get a little better balance between yourself and the track, you obviously you could turn the track up, but Sometimes I'll push my headphones slightly back and off of one ear and that turns down the track and brings up the room sound of the instrument. With banjo, I, I almost don't ever have to do that. Mandolin, I, I will. Anyway, another thing that I've done a few times, because my mixer is always set up right now for this podcast, I'm recording on it right now, I've got a little Mackie an old Mackie 1202 mixer and a laptop that I record the podcast onto. Sometimes I will play my instrument into this microphone that I'm talking into and I'll feed the tracks into a couple of channels on the mixer and then just listen on the headphones. And man, let me tell you, that is the way, the way to do it because you have total control even over the left, right balance and, uh, you can put the track in one side and you in the other or tone. You can mess with the tone and you can set the volume exactly how you want. It's a pretty cool way to do it, but I don't do it that way very often. I tend to use the headphones the most. Anyway, there are a lot of ways you can use jam tracks, but think about all those advantages that that track will play your song at your speed as many times as you need it, you know, and a whole mess of tracks like, like this set costs less than, you know, one lesson from a teacher at a music store. So that it's not expensive, but boy, do they work. And remember this one thing though, like everything that requires practice and that's practically every skill practice only works if you actually do it. And do it often. So anyway, I hope you learned something from this episode. Uh, don't forget to go and at least grab those free tracks that are on the site. Go to bradleylaird.com slash tracks. And there's three of them up there. I, I picked three that were three different tunes in at three sort of different representative tempos to give you an idea of what they're like. 
and play them back on a good on something good where you can really hear what they sound like. And of course, if you buy a set of those tracks, you'll be helping keep this podcast alive and me alive. And you know how I'm into trading. You give, I give. And not only will you help keep the podcast alive, but you will improve your own playing. If you use those things, it'll help your playing. Anyway, I hope you had fun with this episode, and I'll talk to you in the next podcast. Rolling my sweet baby's arms in A at 80. One and two and one and two and three.